So today we're talking to Howard. Hi, Howard. Good morning. Uh, good to have you here. And uh, we'll try to talk about a library that you're working on. But maybe before we go there, how about you give us a bit of an introduction to yourself? Sure. So my name is Howard Lewership, and uh, I've been uh, an active developer for, for quite some time. Uh, came up through the Java world, um, created a fairly popular web framework called Apache Tapestry. And then around 2012, switched out of the Java world uh, and into the Clojure world and uh, did some interesting consulting for some clients in uh, Ireland doing financial work and then got hired full time by Walmart in uh, 2015. And um, our little team at Walmart, uh, right now there's only six of us, with the seventh just about mm -hmm. to be hired, um, is most of the closure that happens inside Walmart. And as you can imagine, there are thousands upon thousands of developers who uh, are using Java or TypeScript mm -hmm. and Node. But mm -hmm. uh, we're doing GraphQL and we're doing it in closure. Right. Yeah, I talked to one person from your team. I talked to Roman. Uh, this mm -hmm. was one of the episodes about Joker. Uh, it was great to talk to him. Yeah. Yeah, Roman is exceptionally sharp. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I noticed that when I talked to him. Uh, so, yeah, the library that we uh, that you were working on, and we'll try to focus this episode on today, uh, is Lasinia. Um, so, how do, how does this, this came about? Well, it's interesting. You know, when I started at Walmart back in 2015, one of the first things I learned about was the way that we were using GraphQL. At that point, I was at best only distantly aware that GraphQL existed. I certainly hadn't used it, built anything in it, um, but you know, quickly saw its usefulness. Mm -hmm. um, GraphQL, I, I guess we'll get into this in a moment about what exactly it is, but it's just a much better way for clients and servers to pass data back and forth. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly my experience at Walmart, where there's dozens of different systems we interact with, each of them their unique thing, it's really nice to have that GraphQL consistency. Anyway, the point is that we had a an internal library just called the GraphQL library. Uh, we were using it to power uh, the servers that um, mobile apps would call in to uh, the service to get information about your purchase history, what you've ordered online, what you've ordered in store. And we would mash all that data together. Um, and you know, you can imagine at Walmart scale, that's a lot of little handsets walking around calling home, uh, mm -hmm. a lot of, a lot of data moving back and forth. Uh, over time, you know, we, we wanted, because I have a lot of history of liking to work in open source. Um, we were able to get the okay to open source this. So we had to come up with a name, which is very difficult. Mm -hmm. And we did a lot of cleanups and, uh, was able to put it out, um, on GitHub in, was it 2018? Well, the thing is, by the time we'd open sourced it, we'd already been using it, you know, in production in some form or another for a couple of years, you mm -hmm. know, and we're using it at, at Walmart scale, which is a pretty significant scale. Mm -hmm. uh, just like everything else in our stack, you know, we're, we're all written in Clojure, right. which has given us such a, an edge in terms of uh, stability and even performance over most of the other teams around us. Mm-hmm. So right. the idea of, of taking this and, and, and making it an open source library um, and getting other people interested and contributing has, has really been terrific for us. Right. Um, so maybe we just take a one step back and talk about a bit about uh, GraphQL. Absolutely. Okay, so GraphQL uh, is a technology uh, specification that came out of Facebook. Mm -hmm. And as I understand the history, uh, it started with the messenger side of the Facebook app. And mm -hmm. as you can imagine, you know, it, that's a very chatty bit of code. It's constantly um, talking to Facebook servers and saying, what's interesting for us to chat about? Who can I talk to? What are all these users um, that are also on the system? Who's in your friend network? What have they been saying? And if you can imagine what that data would look like, it's going to be a graph with, you know, users and postings and links and uploads mm -hmm. and all sorts of other data below it. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I, when I came into Walmart and found that we're using GraphQL, a lot of this really struck a chord because I've been building some REST APIs um, mm -hmm. for my prior client, which is a financial company called Aviso. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were tasked with building a really nice, uh, use uh, a nice API 
Uh, mm-hmm. And so we're experimenting with like swagger and different tools in the closure system, uh, such as um, uh, Bishop and Liberator to find the right thing that allowed us to build a self-documenting uh, API and one that wasn't one size fits all because we had different clients that had different needs. They needed different right. views of the data. And still in this system, we stumbled on, well, how do you deal with a hierarchy? You know, in, in, in the Walmart world, you have customers, customers have orders. Um, and then orders are broken up into line items and line items are maybe linked to a product. You can see that whole hierarchy there. Mm-hmm. And, and the rest world doesn't really give you a terrific option for saying, I want this data about the order and this data about the line items and this data about the products. Um, Often you end up with some system, a lot of systems from Walmart have this idea of response groups, which is basically you get the small amount of data, the medium amount of data, or the big amount of data. Um, you never get the right mix of data. Mm-hmm. And, and, and to talk about GraphQL, um, the concept here is it's a contract. It's a contract between the client and the server. Mm-hmm. And the client is able to send up a request a, a document that describes what needs to be queried mm-hmm. has no description of how it's done that's entirely known on the server side it isn't a database layer because graphql doesn't know about databases what it knows about is this contract this request document the query document that can be executed on the server and then mm-hmm. all the little details about how the data is marshaled basically marshaled into json to be sent back down to the client mm-hmm. You know, what happens on the server side is the framework parses this document as a stream of text and prepares mm-hmm. it for execution and then executes it. And the execution is basically calling into functions supplied by the application that mm-hmm. provide bits and pieces of the data. So there is a callback. We call this a um, resolver for, mm-hmm. say, a customer. So this is at the top level. You know, the query says, I'm interested in customer X. And that X is passed into a function that can go out to the database or the back end, whatever, and get mm-hmm. that data and maybe format it a little bit, you know, but it's still just a raw map. And that comes back into Licinia. Mm-hmm. And then Licinia says, oh, well, you asked for a customer, but the query also asked for these fields for the customer, the customer's ID, the customer's name, the last data purchase for that customer. And then it again dips into the data and selects out those values and builds a response from that. Mm-hmm. So the mm-hmm. core idea here is that the client is really in charge. The client right. gets to say what it wants. Mm-hmm. And that has uh, certain advantages, um, especially when you're bandwidth constraint, because you're not selecting more data than you need. You're selecting just what you need. Mm-hmm. Um, our backend systems are crazy. Um, we are we have an order service system, and this is sort of the big ball of mud about everything about a particular order from every system that touches it. And when we ask for it, that's what we get. We get this ball of data, about 100 kilobytes of JSON for mm-hmm. a typical order, uh, of which we need just a few bits here and a few bits there. So... You know, at one point, you know, clients were talking directly to that system. And even on your little phone, you were downloading that giant amount of data just to throw most of it away. Mm -hmm. But using GraphQL, the client gets exactly what they ask for and no more. And that's a tremendous advantage. Right. Uh, So we sort of, I feel like we talk about the part of the query. Uh, Is there anything specific when it comes to create, update, or delete? Right. Um, so in the GraphQL world, your primary operation is a query, mm-hmm. and then there's mutations. Okay. And underneath the covers, there's really not much difference between them. Um, mm. It's still the same thing. The, the, uh, the field, as it is, GraphQL talks about objects with fields in them. Mm-hmm. The field is tied to a resolver that knows how to process that particular field. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a query... That's very straightforward. It executes that code and generates the results and and you're off and running. For a mutation, the process is exactly the same. It calls into that field, it does some work, but in this case, since it's a mutation, we're allowing for the fact that maybe something's changed on the back end. Maybe you're writing data back to a database or Mm -hmm. you're talking to some uh, other API and doing an update there. But Mm -hmm. you're still selecting a result data and the, the query 
for a mutation in a query looks exactly the same. You invoke an operation, you talk about the fields underneath that that you want, maybe nest it down to some level. Mm-hmm. The only difference is, and this is a cool thing about GraphQL, is you don't just have to have one query per request. A query document can actually pre- perform multiple query operations all at once as a single document. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you might say, I want information about this user, and I want information about this order, uh, or whatever your your domain is. Facebook might be, I want information about user X and right. user Y and thread of discussion Z. And mm-hmm. you can do that all in one query. And right. for a query operation, we even allow that kind of querying behavior to occur in parallel. With mm-hmm. a mutation, if there's more than one mutation, they execute in series. Mm-hmm. Because the idea is that the first one may make a change to backend state, and the second one, the second mutation needs to see that change. Okay. But really, that's the only difference between a query and a mutation as far as Lucini is concerned. Mm-hmm. Just those top level operations have to happen in series. Right. So I think this is like in the contrast with REST. For all of this, you would need to do all the different requests. So instead of having, like you mentioned, three, three, three different things. You would have to do three different requests, maybe even more, because if you want to get more details, then you just need to drill down. We're here, we're just sending one query, and then the resolvers, I believe they somehow combine, and then they just spit out whatever you ask for. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that sort of backs us into this other question that I have. Mm-hmm. You know, what does REST stand for? Representational mm-hmm. state transfer. And here's mm-hmm. the question. Can you really transfer state across all these boundaries? I mean, if you picture it, your state starts probably in a database. It gets transformed a couple of ways on the way out of the database and into, in our case, into closure. It's probably going to be maps with keywords and values. Gets transferred into JSON to go over the wire. Gets turned into JSON objects or JavaScript objects in the client. Gets manipulated there. And then we're trying to reverse that whole process and figure out what goes back into the database at the end of this. You know, I'm not certain that's a reasonable thing to do. It's possible with some Herculean uh, exertion, uh, but is it even the right thing to do? Mm. Um, And then when you have other cases, what if you try to persist a field that is read-only, such as maybe a created timestamp or an updated timestamp or or some other value? Uh, What if you uh, pull a hierarchy of data, you know, in one request, how do you say I want to change some or none or all of these values that are hanging off of my primary object? You know, you have a REST endpoint that gives you an order with the line items. How do you say I just want to change some of these line items? Mm. These these are always questions I didn't have very good answers for when I was uh, building REST APIs in a more traditional way. Mm-hmm. But much like Clojure, you know, takes traditional questions and sort of inverts them. You know, like in, in, in closure, you don't say, well, how do I update this map in place? You don't do that. You say, how do I create a new map that has the updates I need in it? Mm-hmm. And, and GraphQL kind of has that same philosophy that we're not saying that this is all transparent. We're not saying it's all equal. We're saying you have one set of operations to query. And in a typical GraphQL API, that's fairly rich. You have a lot of different ways of getting to your root data, and then you have all the power of GraphQL uh, to select what you want uh, from your starting point. But then mutations are a whole separate thing. So just like in Clojure, you have a SOC, you have update and update in, and all those other functions that operate to change maps that are separate mm-hmm. from the way you do queries. Uh, GraphQL is the same way, one system for queries, and then a much more focused API for producing mutations. And these mutations are really more aligned with specific use cases. Mm-hmm. Right. So in, in oh. that respect, GraphQL and Clojure really line up nicely. You know, you know GraphQL, like, like any technology, you sort of need to evaluate, you know, what are the benefits of it versus mm-hmm. what are the costs? Yeah. Sure. Okay. So, uh, you know, the benefits of GraphQL, a lot of them, um, are, are, are pretty obvious. I, I've already harped a bit upon this, upon this idea that the client is in charge. Mm-hmm. And that has other repercussions that are really nice. For instance, um, evolving your schema is actually pretty straightforward. You can put novelty in new fields and other new features, new operations at the root. You can do that painlessly 
because you know that existing clients will continue to make the same queries. And, and for backwards compatibility, all you have to do is make sure that those existing queries operate the same, mm-hmm. even after you've added something new to your schema. So that's actually fairly big for us because in our earliest code, we actually had clients that would fail when we introduced new response values in the, in the JSON response, just because of how they were coded. Mm-hmm. That happens very rarely, but it's really nice to know that you have this like level of stability caused by the client being in charge. Um, and I, I think we already discussed, you know, one size doesn't fit all, you know, right. having the ability to select just what you need is, is a huge advantage. Another part that's really important about GraphQL is the fact that there's documentation directly in the schema that you execute. So you don't have some documentation on the side that isn't kept up to date. As you're making changes to the schema, you have a place for documentation, both textual documentation and uh, things called directives, which are kind of an annotation that you can put on fields and arguments and everywhere with throughout the schema. Mm-hmm. And all of this stuff is exposed through GraphQL's introspection. Uh, and another very strong feature of GraphQL that we package with the, the Licinia pedestal library is GraphIQL, which is a simple web-based IDE that allows you to execute your queries. Mm-hmm. So you type your query on the left pane, and execute it, and you see the results in the right pane. And that is really nice compared to people hacking things together with curl and so forth. And the results of that are something that you can share. So when I'm working with other developers, like our front-end developers, we can put together a query and show them how it works, and then they can run it in their browser, and then they can turn that into the code that they need to execute. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of um, cool advantages to to GraphQL. And and I think I mentioned earlier this idea of consistency. When I'm talking to other GraphQL services as our backend, it's very pleasant. I know that I just need to know one URL and that all my questions about how I package up a query and how I get a result is is already known because it's GraphQL. It's very standard, even though their implementation is going to be based on Apollo or Node.js or, or some other implementation. I don't care. We have this GraphQL contract. I know what to send. I know what to expect in response. Mm-hmm. Whereas whenever we talk to a different endpoint that is based on REST, it's a question of, you know, is it a get or a post? Is it, uh, do I pass this authentication data as a variable or as a query parameter or as a header? Everyone is just a little bit different. And there's always this like little pain of, you know, setting up the code that's going to talk to that specific service, which is always just a bit idiosyncratic. Um, so that's some really cool advantages of GraphQL. Mm-hmm. Now, there's some costs. You know, uh, I got to imagine all the processing that GraphQL is doing, that Licinia is doing, uh, is more expensive than just saying, give me all the data, shove it into JSON, send it down the pipe. We're doing a lot of extra work. Mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't show up <laughs> in practical terms. Uh, all the time our service spends is spent waiting for the database or other third-party services to respond. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't even f- find the slice of Licinia executing. Uh, but some people do have you know performance concerns. Um, right. The other that's another issue there. Um, there are some other challenges for GraphQL, especially if you're in an environment where you're used to building REST APIs. For instance, authentication. Mm-hmm. Typically, you put rules in your firewall or in your server before you even get to your handler that says, oh, for this particular REST uh, endpoint, this particular path, um, you know, we're going to apply this kind of authentication, this kind of priority, this kind of monitoring. Mm-hmm. And in the GraphQL API, you basically have this one endpoint that does everything. So you might have wildly different clients requesting wildly different data, all sorts of different authentication options, um, all coming through one endpoint. And then you have a question of like, well, how do you effectively monitor that endpoint? If I want to know how many people are hitting this GraphQL API from, say, the homepage of walmart.com versus how many are hitting it from the Android app. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to use some other mechanism rather than the uh, the URL 
to determine what's going on. And in fact, you can't really see what a GraphQL query is short of parsing it. So that always ends up being extra steps in the pipeline to say, okay, now that we parse this request and we know what it looks like, what do we want to log about it so that we can later figure out what kind of query it is? Mm-hmm. And that's something that isn't built into the Lucinia per se. That's something a solution that ends up being very application specific. So we have mm-hmm. a certain kind of approach and code that we've developed in our servers. That is not something we can readily share or would make sense for other organizations. Mm-hmm. Uh, another common problem with GraphQL is, is the classic N plus one problem where, you know, you run the risk of saying, okay, I've done one query to get my customer and, oh, look, this query also looks for order lines, uh, looks for orders. Now I have to do additional query for each order. Um, so just like with SQL, you have to you know, have an idea of what your data set that's going to ultimately be queried looks like early. So you can produce, uh, perform a more, uh, a more efficient query. And mm-hmm. Listening has support for that, but it's something that can't really be baked into the library itself. It's again, there's an API for saying what is in this query so I can figure out what data I need to marshal before we start selecting and pulling data apart to put into the response. But a naive implementation could easily fall into the N plus one problem of doing too many queries. Mm-hmm. Okay. Unless, uh, and finally, when you have... Um, Closure client on uh, a closure client talking to a closure server over GraphQL, which alas isn't the case. Uh, you know our front end is written in React Native and it's written using JavaScript and TypeScript. So this mm-hmm. isn't an issue we we face at Walmart. But if you um, are closure on both ends, it's a little weird to take this very rich you know namespace keywords and all the types that you have in the closure world on the server, push it through this. JSON layer, and then try to turn it back into closure data on the client. But of course, GraphQL doesn't actually mandate JSON, and it would be quite reasonable in that case, if that was something that was important, to leave the data as closure end to end. Right. Um, so you mentioned two things uh, that I just like pick up, and I wanted to ask follow up questions. Uh, one of them is you mentioned like different authentication or authentication versus rest that you have different patterns with different endpoints so is authentication how is authentication handled with graphql yes so authentication is not part of the picture for graphql mm-hmm. you know graphql again is just this contract and you don't right. have to have anything involved with uh, web apis or anything it mm-hmm. ultimately comes down to a um, a function <laughs> called execute. You pass it the query, it it runs runs it through its paces and produces a blob of data. Mm-hmm. So if you want to do anything extra, monitoring, um, authentication, and so forth, uh, that ends up being a bit application specific. Right. So for instance, in the application, our current uh, sort of version two of our schema. Mm-hmm. We have directives that handle authentication. So you can put a, um, a special auth directive onto any field. Typically, these are the root mutations or root queries and specify that uh, that particular field can only be executed if we can authenticate who the consumer is and if they have certain roles. Mm-hmm. And... Where does that data come from? Well, again, that's a callback. You know, so the directive ended up being linked to a bit of code that has access to the incoming request object from Pedestal mm-hmm. and I... can reach in and look at cookies and headers and other stuff and talk to some backend systems and determine who the uh, customer is and then what roles they have. And then you know, we either continue successfully or we sort of abort the whole query with an error and mm-hmm. indicate that it was a, uh, you know, an authentication error. So that's how we do it with the current system. In the prior system, uh, our authentication was a little bit different, and we actually did that as a stage in our pedestal pipeline. So after the point where we identify, you know, parse the query and we know what's going on, we actually could in, have a um, an interceptor in our pedestal pipeline that mm-hmm. would then say, oh, for this operation, we need to know who the customer is and 
um, we're going to validate that the customer is correct. And we have other code elsewhere that would say, oh, well, you know, the customer in in the request was this particular customer ID, but this order is from a different customer ID, so that's not allowed. So we'll also make that an authentication error. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned Pedestal a couple of times. So is Lacinia like geared towards Pedestal? Lacinia currently comes in two pieces. So one is the Lacinia framework itself. Mm-hmm which has no knowledge of the web or anything else. It's just a, you know, uh, functions and a namespace. And then to make it useful on the web, we have Lacinia Pedestal. So we had already kind of standardized on Pedestal internally at, at on our team. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when it made sense to create a web tier, we chose Pedestal. I believe there's another team that has the same thing. I don't remember if it's for Ring Mm-hmm. I, I wish I had checked this ahead of time. Maybe we'll loop back and talk about that in a second. Anyway, the point is we 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 like Pedestal, so we built it on top of Pedestal, which has an interesting interceptor pipeline for allowing you to do your processing. Again, the amount of code is not very large. It's mostly about pulling data out of the request and piping it into the Licinia functions and dealing with a little bit of state management in the request and the context during that mm-hmm. process. Um, so... That kind of thing could be done for Ring or Fulcro or any other framework out there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the advantage of the pedestal one is it's the one that we use, so we know that it works because we're using it production all the time. And also because it has the GraphIQL library all hooked up and easy to enable uh, mm-hmm. right out of the bat, right out of the box. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, mm, hmm. Where should we navigate next? Um, yeah, I'm not sure how well this flows, but I have a note here. If you're doing it right, you're an orchestration layer. So I kind of want to extend on that. Okay. So are there any other tips or like how, yeah, if I, if I want to start to use Lacinia, uh, what are, you know, what's the right approach, right mindset? So GraphQL is a really powerful idea. And a lot of people jump right to the concept of, oh, I've got these tables in Postgres or MySQL. Let's just expose that as my schema. Mm-hmm. And uh, outside of the closure world, in, in the uh, Apollo, GraphQL, and mm-hmm. um, the, the JavaScript world, there are tools that just do that. They're like, you know, point, point, um, point your code at this uh, Postgres database, and you have an instant GraphQL API for that data. Right. And maybe that's okay from a sort of scaffolding point of view. But in my mind, if you're doing it right, you're an orchestration layer. It's not about just being able to grab all that data. Uh, It's about turning that data into something useful for your client. So our API is very very focused on the needs of the client. And, And we're looking for a consistency across our three main platforms, which is the web, Android, and iOS. Mm-hmm. And our API sits in the middle of these things. So we're very view oriented. For instance, when we're showing currency values to the mm-hmm. client, like the, the 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 value for a line item, we don't just show a single number, you know, the, the value is a float or something. We break it down into a little substructure, a little object that, among other things, includes the formatted value, you know, mm-hmm. with the dollar sign and the decimal point and two and so forth. So that, that's one less thing for the clients to each individually do. Mm-hmm. And a huge part of what we do is to take the raw data that we've gotten from our backends and to put it into some kind of coherent order. For instance, we get information about shipments, information about line items, and kind of a vague idea of which line items are in which shipments. And we take that information and a lot of other information besides, and we turn it into groups. So we're like, oh, this group represents this shipment. And this group represents returned items from that shipment. And this group represents something that is in an Uber on its way to your house right now Mm. as individual groups all within the same order. We also have to get information from a bunch of disparate systems within Walmart. You know, is this item okay for return? Uh, What is the thumbnail image for that product? Um, You know, where is my order delivery status right now? So the raw data that we get is just the starting point. And, and that's what I mean by if you're doing it right, you're an orchestration layer. You're not just showing the data that you have available. You're putting together something really useful for your clients and 
predicting their needs, providing for them. You know, obviously we work with them. We, we, we hash out what an API should look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're making something easy for the clients, even though it's hard on our end, which is pretty much what we should always be doing. Anything else that you would like to uh, expand on in terms of the bad parts? Or Well, there's a, another area that's very interesting to us right now, mm-hmm. and that is federation. So right. I think I mentioned that you know a couple of our internal APIs that we talk to are also GraphQL-based. Mm-hmm. And this raises the question about if we have a client that's talking to us and maybe talking to some other GraphQL services within Walmart, uh, why do they need to make multiple requests to mul- multiple systems? Wouldn't mm-hmm. it be great if they could make one request and there would be a gateway there that would divvy up the request and send parts of it to us and parts of it to other parts of uh, Walmart? Mm-hmm. And that exactly exists. It's called Apollo Federation. So this isn't mm-hmm. part of the GraphQL spec. This is um, a project from Apollo who are a big um, – uh, Apollo is a product in the JavaScript side of the of right. things. Okay. And they have this federation idea, which is kind of stitching together multiple schemas to make them all look uniform. And mm-hmm. a, the gateway sits at the core of this thing. It's a very sophisticated tool that understands how to send data, send requests to different endpoints that are all part of the federation. And mm-hmm. it even has this idea that like a type exposed by one service within the federation may have additional fields plugged into it by a different service within the same federation, which is rather sophisticated. And you still have all of the, the benefits that you could send up multiple queries to the gateway and it will divvy it up correctly. It's It's been our, our focus for a bit that all of our new work is with us as part of a federation. So we're doing the customer purchase history side. Other teams are doing more direct access to products or cart and checkout or all the other important things that a client needs access to. The fact that you can do this is actually is just a really nice offshoot of GraphQL and its introspection mm-hmm. abilities that you know code can introspect the service and pull out all the interesting parts of it and from there build this one you know Uber schema to rule them all um, mm-hmm. from all the different parts. Uh, so that, that transparency isn't just good for, for people, it's, it's, it's good for tooling. So mm-hmm. graph IQL is one aspect of that tooling, but federation is another really awesome, uh, outcome of having that kind of introspection for tooling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think I saw, uh, also Netflix is also pretty invested in the, um, uh, GraphQL. What was the word you used? Uh, federation. Or- Federation, yeah, mm-hmm. I think there was also a talk where they created their own uh, federation. They also talked about uh, com- talked about the Apollo Federation, and but I think they rolled out their their own. I I saw it. I saw a talk around this, uh, and I felt it was also interesting that at one point you reached such a big scale that you need another something to figure out how everything is stitched together. Yes, I, I can imagine that. You know, at 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 Netflix, since they are very committed to, you know, just scores of microservices, you can yeah. imagine you have quite a few, uh, quite a few GraphQL endpoints that that mm-hmm. a typical client needs to talk to, mm-hmm. and and that really is nice, you know, um, you know the, the the advantages of federation from a client's point of view, you know, it's so much better to have one endpoint to talk to, one hole in your firewall that needs to be accessible from the outside mm-hmm. that can do all of this, all of this work uh, and can do it more efficiently. It can do much more of it in parallel. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all of the chatter is happening inside the firewall, inside your network where you have the fat pipes uh, mm-hmm. for high, high bandwidth communication between all these servers, rather than saying the client who has the, you know, again, could very easily be a mobile phone on 3G or something, doesn't have a lot of bandwidth. Uh, mm-hmm. And so asking them to do all this work uh, ends up being a pretty slow, um, ends up being a slow solution because the wrong party is doing this integration work. So federation is a really great way to avoid that. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and so you mentioned the part of orchestration. Is there anything else that if I come to uh, using Lasinia from Clojure or yeah, maybe what are the, the parts that I should like understand? Because I, I feel like GraphQL is a lot about types and in Clojure we don't really use types so much. Yes, so GraphQL has a concept of types. Um, so this is very important because it allows the Lacinia to, to parse your incoming query and make sure that um, everything you reference exists and is, is correct before passing it down the, the pipeline. Mm -hmm. So by the time you get down to the resolvers, there's no guesswork about whether you know, a field exists or whether the query of fields below that field um, are valid. It's it's going to be a hundred percent valid query before we start executing. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, there are types, but these types are a little bit closer in my mind to specs than they are to types in a typical uh, programming language. We're basically saying, you know, this type is a type because it has you know fields x and y and z. Mm -hmm. And there's a bunch of edge cases that GraphQL handles. It has uh, a concept of interfaces, which is a way of saying, yes, this particular type uh, or multiple types all share this subset of fields. And mm -hmm. they do that by implementing the interface and having the, those fields. There's also a union type, which says these different types are all related. Maybe you have a query that can return. Um, well, in our older API, we kind of had this. You had queries that could return either an in-store transaction that was one shape or an online transaction that was another shape. And you could create a union that says, okay, whatever you ask for, it may be either the in-store transaction or the online trans, uh, transaction. And then there's a kind of casting operator inside your GraphQL query that says, oh, if the type is X, then perform you know, this set of subqueries, select these particular fields from that, that uh, type. And if the actual type is online order, select this different set of um, fields from the selection. Mm -hmm. so, so the typing is there. It's relatively loose. And it has all these advantages that, um, that we can validate the query is correct before executing it. It helps with the tooling. For instance, the GraphIQL IDE downloads the schema with all of its mm -hmm. types and can validate your input on the client even before it submits it to us. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of our front ends um, use that same introspection data and they generate uh, TypeScript classes from that data directly. So they you know, marshal from JSON right into TypeScript objects on the client. And they like to have some assurances that for instance, non-null fields are never actually null. Mm -hmm. um, which is, again, something you can express in, in the GraphQL schema. So the types are useful at multiple layers, less so for us as implementers, because we're used to closure where we can play fast and loose and just worry about the data. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to think that the GraphQL type system doesn't particularly get in your way, but it has a lot of advantages, both on our side implementing the service and definitely for clients and tooling. Mm-hmm. Uh, would there be any other things that you feel like people should be aware of before like jumping in to understand how they work? I'd say like any good tool, GraphQL solves a particular subdomain of problems and it doesn't solve all of them. For mm -hmm. instance, you know, file uploads just don't really fit in with the GraphQL world. You know, there isn't really a way of, of, of doing that. It's, it's not part of its intended mechanism. See, if you're, your system has a, excuse me, if your system needs to do file uploads, you probably need to sort of mix and match, have a kind of REST API point that can maybe do a file upload and give it some kind of like tag or ID and then do a GraphQL query where you reference that ID. There isn't a way to just say, you know, the type of this field is, is an uploaded file. Right. So, and there's probably other edge cases there. Um, GraphQL has a cool... Uh, I, sorry, GraphQL has a third type of operation called a subscription. Mm -hmm. And this is very nice. This is essentially server push using WebSockets. Mm -hmm. uh, Apollo provides a client-side uh, API for this, and Lasini is compatible with it. Okay. Unfortunately, it's not something we've used 
in Walmart, and it also does not work with Federation, so we're not likely to start using it. But the mm-hmm. idea is really cool uh, right. because it takes a lot of the guesswork and, and custom code out of the equation and gives you, again, a nice uniform way on both the client and the server to talk mm-hmm. about uh, server-pushed events. Mm-hmm. So that's very right. nice. Right. Yeah, so I, I guess in, in this case, you would also have to upgrade the protocol from HTTP to WebSocket. Right. So when we implemented this, um, we implemented it so that we could be compatible with the spec, because that's very important to us, is to be as mm-hmm. compatible with the spec as, as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have not had the opportunity to, to use that so far, mm-hmm. as I said, and we probably won't because of federation and subscriptions not working together. There's a, a couple, another con, and maybe this could be referenced earlier. Um, mm-hmm. One disadvantage of GraphQL, especially for constrained devices like phones, is that the query document that you send up can get somewhat sizable. Mm-hmm. And that really is not so good because the worst part of bandwidth is the upload from uh, a phone you know, over a wireless network, you know, 3G, uh, mm-hmm. up to the servers. So sending a large document up is really worse. Your download speeds is always a multiple of your upload speed. So Licinia is structured so that you can instead reference a server-stored query document and merely pass along variables that plug into that document rather mm-hmm. than passing the document itself. Mm-hmm. Now, this is something we sort of hint at in the documentation. And again, the solution for this is a little too application-specific to be included in Licinia or Licinia Pedestal itself. But the basic idea is something that we've seen implemented and re-implemented uh, in the closure world and in the JavaScript world as well. So mm-hmm. uh, that's something to be aware of is that you might get to the point where it makes sense to just send up query ID and a couple of variables to plug in. And that's going to speed things up on the server side. Mm-hmm. But mostly it's going to take care of the, the bandwidth problem from the client. One of the larger problems that we have seen with GraphQL adoption by the client is that typically we're operating under some pretty tight uh, SLAs. Uh, We need to respond within a certain period of time. And clients have a tendency to ask for any piece of data they could ever possibly use for any part of the UI, even parts that won't be seen for a while. Mm -hmm. And so we end up with this concept that, oh no, GraphQL is kind of slow. It takes too long to get all this data. And what I've been trying to push on our on our front end teams is the fact that you don't need all the data initially. Um, they could do a one query that gets just the key data so they can get something on the screen quickly and mm-hmm. potentially get data that doesn't require us to query out to our slower third back end systems as much. Mm-hmm. And then they could follow on as you scroll around, as you click around in the UI, dynamically gather the data that you need and get it on the screen. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that would really leverage what GraphQL can do in that, you know, the same client may need different data at different times. And by having, having uh, less data uh, flowing initially, you can get the screen painted initially faster. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, that's something to think about when organizing your, your GraphQL schema. Think about that use case. Think about... Do I want to have a fast way to get data later rather than try and get it all at once? Because, you know, we've been kind of bemoaning the fact that a lot of times the queries that we get through the Federation is this one size fits all giant query. And we're having these internal debates about, well, why are we even doing GraphQL? If they're going to ask for everything every time, we could just do a REST endpoint. But having the option not to do that. I think is going to lead to bigger performance improvements than than we maybe will be able to manufacture on the server side, mm-hmm. because it's all about the customer experience. They don't care what order the data gets there; they just want to see the screen appear, and they don't mind if stuff sort of pops in a little bit as you're moving around. Right. Mm-hmm. Would there be yeah. anything else specific for the GraphQL oh, or Lasinia? Yeah. There's actually yeah. one extra thing about Lasinia that I keep mm-hmm. forgetting to mention, which is kind of funny because no one remembers this. One of the things that we baked into Licinia very deliberately mm-hmm. is uh, the idea that Licinia is fundamentally an asynchronous framework. When you use it casually, 
when you let it do the work, when your resolver functions execute and just immediately return a value, that's fine and it works great. But a resolver function always has the option of instead of doing all of its work, you know, maybe using blocking IO and then returning a value, it always has the option of returning a promise that is going to provide that value later. And then it could spin up a thread or use a thread from a thread pool or do something with core async to do that work. And when it's ready, it can provide that data back into um, back into that promise. And listening will pick back up from where it left off and do all the selections below that value. The point is, while listening is waiting for that, it may be able to progress and do other parts of the render. Okay, so... Uh, remember, I think I mentioned earlier on the idea that query operations are allowed to execute in parallel. Mutations have to go sequentially, but query operations can go in parallel. Well, that only triggers if you actually make use of this resolver result promise that says, okay, continue what you're doing. I'll get back to you when we have the value. Go do whatever work is ready to be done. And when this promise triggers, then it will continue and render below that. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so that's a very powerful thing. We use that a lot in the previous version of our schema, uh, because we would just get to resolvers and we're like, oh, well, you know, we haven't figured out something that we need. We haven't figured out how to organize line items into groups. We'll just do that now. Or in order to provide this data, we have to go talk to a backend service to get that product thumbnail URL or to get that, um, order a return status. So we'll mm-hmm. just do that dynamically now, but we'll return a promise. We'll do it in our own time. And meanwhile, other parts of the giant selection process can continue. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're looking for like the maximum performance from Lucinia, it's good to be able to identify where you might be able to take advantage of that parallelism. And then you sort of opt into it. And underneath the covers, you know, Lucinia just assumes that everything is a resolver result promise and take deals with it that way. Mm-hmm. So, um, interestingly, on our ne- our current generation of the schema, we kind of got away from that, and we come into one central bit of code that says, resolve the order and every bit of the order data that we need, get it all into shape so that it can all be rendered out directly. And that's some very heavy-duty uh, core async code that you know spawns a bunch of requests to do all gather all kinds of additional data and then massages it all together and juggles things transforms things and mm-hmm. uses Lucinia's preview API to even figure out stuff. For instance, mm-hmm. like if you don't ask for the product thumbnail image, then we never have to do that step. We never have to talk to the product backend. Um, mm-hmm. So we're able to do that very efficiently, but we were able to do that because this new schema was uh, designed from scratch much more recently. And mm-hmm. we were able to identify this one spot where we can do all of the parallel behavior. Mm-hmm. And I guess, and, and who marshaled that? That was Roman. We've talked about how sharp he is before. <laughs> I see. So um, yeah, that was his vision and it was a good one. Right. And uh, what led you to this uh, part where you said this is the latest iteration? Uh, internally at Walmart, there's been a lot of work on a updated version of the Walmart app and mm-hmm. uh, and the associated the, the web tier. So that's mm-hmm. been a big focus within Walmart for, for quite some time. And mm-hmm. so in the process of um, uh, this federated orchestration layer that we're part of was an opportunity to create a new schema that shared mm-hmm. code, but not structure with the old schema. Mm-hmm. So our, our servers actually can do either one of them on slightly different URIs. Yeah. Um, are there any other tips when it comes to designing your schema? You mentioned this a lot. Uh, again, um, what I love about GraphQL is that it gives you a mechanism to communicate with your clients. In our case, you know the front-end teams. Mm-hmm. We can propose a GraphQL schema and... We use Confluence or, or email or whatever. We can you know put that document together. We can discuss it ahead of time. Um, it's relatively easy to create you know samples of what the response might look like, what the query might look like. Um, it's not just for computers to talk to computers. GraphQL also is a very effective way for developers to talk to developers. Mm-hmm. So 
Uh, this makes it possible to ensure that we're communicating well early with the front end developers and gives us a chance to make sure we're building the right thing the first time. Mm-hmm. So that's another consequence of using GraphQL and the fact that it's the standard language, this contract between client and server is also cl- a contract between teams. It mm-hmm. serves pretty well for, for both. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, I feel like we could go into the direction if I want to start with Lacinia. Where should I go? What do you think? Uh, so Lacinia, you know, you, we can start with the, um, to get started with Lacinia. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, you know, obviously we're assuming you know Clojure. <laughs> Uh, sure. It's a closure framework. Uh, we start with the GitHub site for Lacinia, and there's some pretty extensive documentation there. Mm-hmm. Um, that's with one of my big efforts in bringing Lacinia to open source was to write a lot of documentation and um, a good tutorial. So there's mm-hmm. a tutorial to follow along where you build a very basic application in Lacinia step by step. Mm-hmm. In fact, my my greater ambitions, which unfortunately have uh, been overtaken by reality was for that tutorial to turn into a general building applications and closure tutorial rather than building a Lacinia applications tutorial. Mm-hmm. But be that as may, um, as far as it goes, it's a, it's a nice tutorial. It gets you used to the idea uh, of Lacinia and how to build your schema, mm-hmm. how to inject your resolvers, um, how to build and test as you go. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think the ramp up into Lacinia is relatively painless. You know, okay. uh, once you get the basic ideas, and there's an awful lot of documentation about GraphQL out in the world. Uh, once you get the basic idea of of types and queries and operations, it's very straightforward how to put that together in the closure world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if there is any other questions people might have, what are the best channels to reach out? Primarily, um, I'm responding to um, the, the GraphQL channel on the Clojureans uh, Slack. Mm-hmm. So I keep I monitor that. I take a peek at that every morning. Um, that and of course, you know, GitHub issues and oh, GitHub PRs. Those are quite welcome. <laughs> We've gotten a lot of very good contributions um, from from the community. Uh, everything from patching the documentation to fixing some performance issues. Um, we've, we've had some really good contributions. So would there be anything else, uh, worth to mention that people are just aware or anything to the community? I'm not quite sure if there's anything else that's worth discussing. I think we've hit the fact that we like GraphQL. It solves a lot of problems, comes with a few costs that are manageable, um, that we're using it in anger and in production. Right. You know, uh, I'm not quite sure where else we can go with that. Mm-hmm. And right. I finally remembered to, to get in <laughs> the, the, it's highly, it's highly async underneath the covers <laughs> right. if you want it to be, which is something other people who've done talks on Lucinia have glossed or have forgotten to mention because right. it's so easy to use it as is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So uh, thanks again for uh, stopping by talking, well, creating Lucinia, then talking about it very vividly with all the problems and pros and cons. I think it's great. And yeah, um, look forward to trying it out. I hope you do. And be in contact if you have any questions. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, consider supporting it by rating on the platform you're listening to, sharing with others, and supporting it directly by buying some video courses and learning ClojureScript and Clojure. You can check out the courses at jacekshe.com. That is J-A-C-K-S-C-H-A-E.com. Thanks.